This is Thinking Freely with the ACLU of Maryland, the show that talks about what's happening politically in Maryland, from the courts to the streets. I'm your host, Amber Taylor. For 90 days each year, we have the Maryland Legislative Session. Marylanders make their voices heard in Annapolis, our state capital, as legislators work to pass bills into law. Every session, the ACLU plays both offense and defense as our public policy team fends off attacks from lawmakers seeking to undermine our civil liberties. And they also work to support lawmakers who are fighting to protect and strengthen our rights and the promise of American values. This year, we saw two pandemics, COVID-19 and the reiteration of structural racism, especially the systemic violence that police officers commit against Black people. Maryland's policing system is working exactly as intended. We can find this in early origins of American policing that date as far back as the 1700s, when white people formed patrol groups to terrorize, beat, capture, and kidnap Black people. From its inception, the fundamental racism of that history has continued into our current policing system. It's unacceptable. It's going to take all of us to reimagine policing so that the lives of Black and brown people are protected. That's why over 90 organizations have come together to support five impactful police reforms that will make a real difference across the state of Maryland. They are repeal the Law Enforcement Officers' Bill of Rights, restore control of the Baltimore City Police Department back to the Baltimore City residents, make investigations into police misconduct transparent by reforming the Maryland Public Information Act, limit the use of force by law enforcement, and remove law enforcement from our children's schools. We will also advocate for other issues like education rights, seen in passing the Blueprint for Maryland's Future Act, a statewide trust act to defend the rights of immigrants in our communities and to finally take the politics out of our parole system. Today, we'll be joined by Yannette Emanuel, our public policy advocate, Jill Spielberger, our public policy counsel, and Justin Nally, our education policy analyst, to talk about our priority issue areas and, of course, how you can get involved. First of all, Joe, Justin, Yannette, thank you so much for being on Thinking Freely today. We really appreciate having you on, especially given your really busy schedules. Thank you. Thanks for having us, Amber. Thanks for having us, Amber. So, Justin, can you talk to us about the General Assembly, what it is, And also, why is it so important? Thanks, Amber. Well, the General Assembly is the lawmaking body for the state of Maryland. So it's made up of all your elected officials across the state, 47 senators, 141 delegates. So what happens each year is that the General Assembly gets together for a legislative session. This legislative session is from January to April, which is hosted for 90 days. And during these 90 days, these elected officials introduce bills and hopes for it to become law. So these bills affect our day-to-day life, such as the price of prescription drugs, your civil rights, your education funding for your neighborhood school, and the various other issues. This is the time where current laws are updated and new laws are created in hopes to be put into implementation. So the General Assembly legislative session is very important to pay attention to. 
So Yannette, I wanted to turn the conversation to you. Can you talk to us about some of your and the coalition's concerns as we go into the 2021 session? This will certainly be a session like we've never had before. Um, Annapolis can already be a tricky place to navigate for members of the general public. And amid a global pandemic and with all the adjustments that need to happen in response to COVID, um, it's certainly going to be even more complicated and confusing than before. Which is why it's critical that there is a balance between giving the General Assembly the flexibility needed to execute its constitutional responsibilities during this crisis, as well as the public's right to participate, so that the legislative process is fully transparent and accountable. Some of my concerns, and including our coalition's concerns, include um, the cap on public testimony, uh, limited access to legislators. So we're curious, how will our directly impacted uh, families um, be able to reach out and meet with legislators during this session? Um, the transparency and advanced notice of hearings, subcommittee meetings, and voting sessions. We wanna make sure people have reasonable amount of time to weigh in on important pieces of legislation because we understand not everyone is a paid lobbyist, people have full-time jobs and families to care for. So we need to make sure that they have the opportunity to participate. Our other concerns include scenarios like what happens in the event that there are technological issues. Like if a video stream goes down, are the discussions suspended until the audio and video is restored? Um, additionally, the rules and the processes of the Senate and the House seem to be different, which can also be very confusing to the public. So we're looking forward to um, working with our coalition partners and leadership to tackle these issues in advance of session. And Joe, with that in mind, what would you recommend for Marylanders to do to really stay informed and stay up to date on what's happening throughout the 90 days of session? It's really important to stay up to date with what's happening this session, especially since things will be so different because of COVID. And, you know, bills will be moving through the process quicker than usual. And so much legislative work will be done virtually instead of in person. So this is especially good for people who wouldn't normally be able to come all the way out to Annapolis because there's still lots of different ways to get involved in the legislative process, lobby your legislators, submit testimony, and help pass important bills. So first, people should definitely follow the ACLU on social media to see news updates and action alerts. It's good to be familiar with the General Assembly website because that's where you'll go to see the actual legislation, check the dates of committee hearings, submit testimony, and track bills through the legislative process. And we always, always encourage people to contact your legislators and let them know what you think about these bills. It makes a really big difference when they hear directly from their constituents because it shows them that these issues are important to people in the community and that people are watching and holding them accountable. So Joe, you know, unfortunately, over the course of the summer, we saw the unprecedented Black Lives Matter protests over the killings of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and too many other Black people. The police violence that police officers have been committing against Black people, both here in the state of Maryland and across the country, is really unacceptable. This is a real crisis, and we've heard from too many family members whose loved ones have been killed by police about the changes that we need to make in Maryland to make our community safer, particularly during police interactions. One of the things that they've been fighting for is a use of force policy. Can you talk to us about what that use of force policy is and also what it should include? So 
because Maryland doesn't have a state statute limiting how police officers can use force, it means that the law in Maryland is governed by two Supreme Court cases, Graham and Garner, which authorize the use of force when it's objectively reasonable, which is a really low bar and history shows us that it's completely insufficient to protect Maryland residents. So we have to do better. So our use of force bill does a lot of different things, but the key points are, first, it elevates the legal standard to say that officers can only use force as a last resort when it's absolutely necessary. It clearly defines lethal force to include things like chokeholds, strikes to a person's head or neck, multiple discharges of a taser, and other specific actions that officers routinely take. Third, it requires courts in determining whether force was justified to look at the totality of the circumstances. So that means looking at things like the officer's actions leading up to uh, the use of force to see whether the officer tried to de-escalate a situation, whether they maybe contributed to the need to use force, and whether there were reasonable alternatives to using force. And lastly, it ensures that people can file a civil action in court for the unlawful use of force. So by enacting these best practices, Maryland will have a really robust policy that will not just protect residents here in Maryland, but also be a nationwide model for other states as well. Definitely looking forward to seeing that bill get passed. And Yannette, I also wanted to ask you about something else that family members whose loved ones have been either brutalized or killed by police have been fighting for for decades. It is getting rid of the Law Enforcement Officers Bill of Rights more commonly known as Leobor. Can you talk to us about why it is so necessary to repeal the Law Enforcement Officers Bill of Rights? Yeah, I can certainly do that. Um, so the Maryland, uh, the Maryland Law Enforcement Officers Bill of Rights creates special rights for law enforcement officers um, that no other public employee has. These special uh, rights range from expungement of disciplinary records to limits on what discipline can be imposed for certain infractions. Leobor also shields officers from discipline by saying they can only be disciplined after a mini trial is conducted with fellow officers as the judges, no matter how egregious the conduct or how clear the evidence is, unless they are convicted of a felony. Um, it's a ridiculous way to run a workplace, and it's no accident that the only workplace that we run this way is the one that has um, the most dramatic, disproportionate, and deadly effects on Black and Latinx people. Um, these are also special rights um, that are not uh, required by the constitution. So for all of the reasons um, mentioned is why we need to completely repeal the Law Enforcement Officers Bill of Rights. And Yannette, just for some context, how long has the ACLU of Maryland and our partners been working on this issue? I personally, um, for since the beginning of the summer, but the ACLU of Maryland for the last 20 years, um, you can ask David Roca, who's been with the organization for a long time. This is the one of the first issues he worked on when he first got here. Um, and it's been around since 1974. Um, so it's, it's beyond time to repeal this thing. In addition, Yannette, can you also talk to us about another issue that family members whose loved ones have either been brutalized or killed by police have also been fighting for, which is reforming the Maryland Public Information Act in very specific ways. Can you talk to us about what reforms would like to see change under the Maryland Public Information Act? 
Yeah, so currently um, under the Maryland Public Information Act, all police personnel um, records, which include their disciplinary files and uh, misconduct records, are classified as personnel records and therefore undisclosable through the Maryland Public Information Act. So um, whether so, there have been plenty of uh, families that we've worked with who have been victims of police brutality or have lost a loved one to police violence, and they have been unable to get information about a complaint that they filed um, due to uh, it being classified as personnel records. So they can't even get access to their own records, even their own testimony. The only thing they can find out is whether the officer was disciplined, if the officer was disciplined at all. Um, so they get no real transparency over how the investigation was conducted, who they and who they interviewed, who they spoke with, um, what you know, what what, did, what went into consideration when um, figuring out or determining the officer's discipline, um, and then also just the public. The public will hear about something that happened in their neighborhood, uh, a neighbor that was murdered, um, and they want to know what did that police department know prior um, to this incident? What did they know about the officer? Um, how many times has the officer been involved in a similar case? Um, and right now, none of us can get access to that information. In addition to that, there's also defense attorneys who have clients who are um, facing charges solely based off an officer's testimony and can't get access to those officers' previous um, misconduct records, whether this officer has a history of lying, um, and uh, other important factors that should be taken into consideration when whether uh, when when, uh, when the judge is determining whether this officer's testimony is completely reliable. An example of that is is. Uh, is the, the family of uh, William Green. Um, Michael, Corporal Michael Owens had a history of abusing people in the community. Um, he would uh, uh, brutalize people in the community, then, um, then file false charges against them and then never show up to court. And there's definitely a pattern in his behavior, um, but there's no way that anyone who was um, any member of the public or a civilian review board would be able to get access to those records and determine whether the previous misconduct records or use of force complaints filed against him were thoroughly investigated. And then now we have a situation where William Green is gone um, and we don't know whether how much the department knew um, in advance or what they did to, to um, to reprimand him for his actions. So we do know that um, currently in in complaints that are made, at least 90% of complaints made by the public are unsustained, which is a, just goes to show another example as to why we need that transparency and uh, public oversight over how these investigations are handled. Um, in addition to that, we have an example of um, the Anton Black case where a police chief falsified records to hire an officer with proven record of misconduct. And again, that was that only came out after the murder of Anton Black. And so um, this isn't just, again, another example as to why we need access to both sustained and unsustained complaints that are made against police officers. So right now, all an officer, can, all, an, all a chief can tell us is, you know, we did the best that we could and that's all the families get. And that's definitely not enough. Um, these families deserve more. You know, Justin, another issue that we will be working on is removing law enforcement from our children's schools. Can you talk to us about why this is so important, particularly for Black students and students with disabilities? And also, what are the positive things that we can do to address behavioral issues and improve the overall school community? Sure. So over the past couple of decades, what we've seen is this shift and that police officers have been added to schools in order to 
uh, prevent the rise in school shootings. However, research over the years and studies have shown that the police presence in schools does not actually reduce school shootings or reduce any violence in the schools. So what has happened is that the police presence in schools has increased students, that, um, the number of students that are arrested for minor offenses and arrested at a higher rate. So things like fighting, disruption in class, that normal behaviors that kids engage in and students engage in that are part of growing up have become reason for arrest. So what has happened is these arrests disproportionately impact black students and students with disabilities. So just a couple of figures so you can understand how serious this offense is with these arrests is 56% of students, black students are arrested in the state of Maryland, but we're only making up one third of the entire student population. And with students with disabilities, they only make up 12% of the population, but they are among 23% of those who are arrested. So what's happened is we are arresting on the back end instead of taking preventative measures to get students the help and support that they need. So some supports and investments that we can look at for really curtailing any problems in school is the, the addition of social workers, the addition of counselors, psychologists, and the investment in restorative practices and approaches so that we can take these preventive measures rather than just throwing kids in jail and giving them a case. So in Maryland, we spend $10 million on the Student Resource Officer Program, $10 million. So that's $10 million that are given to the districts so they can fund the police in schools and law enforcement in schools for their training, for their support for police. Now that's also $10 million that is not in the hands of the school to be able to use for these support systems. So part of the legislation is not only removing the school resource officers, but also reallocating that $10 million to go to those counselors and social workers and those supports that students need. So it's a very important uh, to have both aspects of removing the school police, but also re reallocating that $10 million that has already set aside in the budget and giving it to uh, those supports that students will have to thrive in the classrooms. So another issue that we're working on is restoring control of the Baltimore City Police Department back to Baltimore City residents. Joe, can you talk to us about how Baltimore City residents would benefit from having control of the Baltimore City Police Department restored back to them? Sure. So right now, Baltimore is the only jurisdiction in Maryland without authority to govern its own police department. And that's because the Baltimore Police Department is actually a state agency rather than a city agency. So there's really very little that city government can do to reform the department. Baltimore residents have to travel to Annapolis to lobby for changes, and they have to lobby legislators who aren't necessarily from Baltimore and don't represent Baltimore and are therefore less accountable to the people of Baltimore. So this bill to bring the Baltimore Police Department under city control will help us to hold local leaders accountable, allow city residents to have a louder voice to advocate for change, and help ensure that that decisions concerning the police department are really being made in the best interests of Baltimore City. So we've already talked about the five police reform issue areas that we'll be working on in the next legislative session. But of course, we are the ACLU of Maryland, and we'll be working hard to defend the civil rights and civil liberties facing Marylanders today. Joe, can you talk to us about some of the issues and concerns that members of our immigrant communities have been dealing with and what we'll be doing to address some of those concerns? 
So advocates have been working for years to end a dangerous program called 287G. The 287G program deputizes local law enforcement officers to assist with federal immigration enforcement, despite really little training, oversight, and accountability. And from the beginning, it's led to countless stories of racial profiling and abusive police practices targeting the immigrant community to the point where people are fearful of picking their kids up from school, going to the hospital, or just driving down the street because any routine police encounter could lead to arrest, detainment, family separation, and even deportation. And as a result, many people are afraid of reporting crimes or even talking to police because to them, police represent a threat instead of protection. So the Trust Act would clarify and limit how local law enforcement can assist with immigration enforcement. Specifically, it would end 287G programs and prevent local law enforcement from cooperating with ICE. It would prevent officers from inquiring about immigration status, notifying ICE, detaining and transferring people to ICE, and it would protect immigrants from ICE in sensitive locations like schools, courthouses, and hospitals. So this bill is really important to help ensure that all Marylanders, regardless of immigration status, have the constitutional rights to which they're entitled and that they can live here safely without fear. Um, it'll also help make sure that you know, public safety decisions are being made in the best interests of Maryland as opposed to the federal government and provide important protections that will help rebuild trust between law enforcement and the immigrant community here. Thanks, Joe. And Justin, as you well know, education is a state constitutional right in Maryland. That's why we're fighting so hard to make sure that every student has an equitable access to a high quality education. But during the last legislative session, Governor Hogan vetoed the blueprint for Maryland's future bill, otherwise known as Kerwin. Can you talk to us about why the General Assembly needs to override that veto and also what's at stake? Well, the blueprint for Maryland's future bill came from the Kerwin Commission and their recommendations who met over a period of five years who are essentially revamping the education system in Maryland. So this includes how teachers are paid, how curriculum is taught, how school funding works and adjustments to the formula. So this bill passed last year and it was a big deal and it was vetoed by the governor. And what this bill would do was input infused millions, hundreds of millions of dollars into school systems that have been drastically underfunded for decades. So for instance, Baltimore City had a $300 million deficit as of 2016. Prince George's had a $542 million deficit at that same time. So this bill would infuse hundreds of million dollars into these school systems that have been running on these deficit and help them with the financial burden. It also will help some money for the cause of learning loss due to COVID. So we'll, we'll be calling for override of the veto uh, so that we can have this phase and then this money over the next few fiscal years and ensuring that the districts who are furthest behind with receiving the funding who have been underfunded for de decades receive the money first. So it's very important to have this bill, uh, veto override for this bill. So Justin, Stopping the school-to-prison pipeline is necessary, and removing SROs, or school police, is essential. But what are some other things that we can do to protect students and their rights? Well, a major piece in protecting students and children in general 
is to make sure that when they are arrested or taken into custody, that, that they have a lawyer present. So we hear the school to prison pipeline, we know that arrests are going up. So on the other side, when they are in custody of law enforcement, we need to make sure that they are protected. And how this protection happens is that there is an attorney present before any interrogation for a child takes place. So this upcoming session, we will be reintroducing legislation that would advocate for and require an attorney be consulted before any child is interrogated by law enforcement. So when there is an attorney present, research shows that children are not falsely confessing and they're not being convicted of crimes that they did not commit because they have an advocate in the room for them when they are being questioned by police. So children need to be protected um, up, you know, our brains don't stop developing until we're 25 years old. So we can't expect children to make decisions in a very uncomfortable, tense situation where adults probably couldn't even make the same decision as well. So making sure that attorney is present is part of our whole police reform package so that we can protect children around the interrogation process. Thanks, Justin. And Yannette. Another thing that we need to do as we reform the legal justice system is looking at our parole system. Maryland's parole system is broken for over 2,000 Marylanders, many of whom are Black. Can you talk to us about what we and our partners are going to do to create a parole system that is fair and politically unbiased? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, there's definitely a lot of work that we have to do to reform our parole system, but we can't really do any real work until we first fix um, our current process, which requires the governor to be a part of it. Um, so unlike uh, nearly every other state, Maryland requires the governor to personally approve parole for anyone given a life with a parole sentence. So for more than two decades, these Marylanders have been systematically denied a meaningful opportunity for parole, regardless of the individual merit and in spite of uh, the parole commission recommending them for release after an extensive vetting process. Um, so what we seek to ensure is that people given sentences to life with the possibility of parole who have thoroughly demonstrated their rehabilitation have a real chance to earn parole um, by changing the law that leaves the decision up to the uh, by changing the law to require that the decision is left up to the parole commission. Um, this is extremely important, especially in the time that we're in now, as COVID pandemic uh, uh, risks are turning life with parole sentences into death in prison sentences. Worse still is the extreme racial disparities in who is serving life sentences means that the that this failure disproportionately affects Black families and communities are deprived of the leadership of the people who remained imprisoned, um, which is a great cost to us all and is exactly why we need to remove the governor out of the parole process. My next question is for everybody. What impact can regular Marylanders have on these policy issues? And can you also talk about the power that community members have when they are engaged? Well, our elected officials are elected by the people and they're supposed to be serving the people. So they have all the power, all the power is in the people. And if um, constituents are reaching out to their legislators, um, they will at least take a look. But then if there's a lot of folks reaching out and, and from their constituent about a specific issue, you can definitely um, know for sure that it's going to be swaying how they vote on these issues because ultimately um, you're their boss. And so you get to hire and fire them every four years and they know that. So they uh, they want to appease their constituency and they just need to and we just need to make sure that their voices are being heard. 
And I would also add that, you know, legislators are used to seeing and hearing from lobbyists every day, but it makes a huge difference when they hear directly from their constituents, voters in their districts, because that tells them that, you know, ordinary citizens are, you know, watching um, what happens in Annapolis and, you know, they're trying to hold uh, their leaders accountable um, and legislators are certainly responsive to that. And Gannett, how can people urge their elected officials to take action on these issues? Well, for starters, if you don't know who your legislator is, you can visit mdelect.net, type your address in, and it'll let you know who your state representatives are. Um, additionally, you can sign our petition, um, which can be found at aclu-md.org slash reimaginingpolicing. Um, you can also sign up for our listserv and follow us on social media because that's where we're constantly putting up action alerts um, and um, in educating and informing the public on how they can support the work that we're doing. Joe and Justin, thank you so much for being on Thinking Freely today. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your very busy schedules to have this conversation with us. Good luck with the 2020 legislative session. Thank you, Amber, for having us. Thank you for having us. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Thinking Freely. If you like Thinking Freely, make sure to leave a review and subscribe to us from wherever you get your podcasts. Please remember that COVID-19 will make this legislative session like no other. So get on our email list and follow us on social media to stay up to date on what's happening. Your leadership is needed to talk with your representatives about the issues mentioned today and more civil liberties issues as we work to address inequities and fulfill the country's unrealized promise of justice and freedom for all. This episode of Thinking Freely was recorded on Piscataway Native American land. I'm Amber Taylor, the host and producer of Thinking Freely. Till next time.